I'm here today on the Meaning Code with Tayo, and it's really a blessing to finally um, have this opportunity to talk on, uh, put it on the internet, on the interwebs, as they say. Um, Tayo and I finally got to meet in person at the Chino Conference, and <clears throat> as I understand it, you were also at the conference in Germany. No, I huh? wasn't. Um, I was part of the Euro trip, which the Germany oh. trip was Okay, you were part. Of, you were part of the Europe trip. Okay, yeah, and so any part of that that you want to tell would be fine with me. But I thought it would be great for the listeners to kind of hear your story and have you introduce yourself, and maybe we can play with some ideas. Yes, um, definitely. Thank you so much, Karen. It's funny because uh, there's a, a imbalance of you. I know so much about because I've been watching you while you know nothing about it. <laughs> At the conference, I was sat with um Anthony and Johnny. I was like, oh, there's Karen. And I was like, it was kind of creepy. I was talking, look, is she free? No, she's still busy. Like, just stalking you to try to get a conversation with you. So um, I'm very grateful to be here. Thank you. Uh, in terms of my story, so I'm Nigerian. And I was trying to get the best way to start my to tell my story. And I think I just started with like, my grandparents on both sides so on my dad's side my um my grandparents had four kids my dad is the third the, th the second son the third born um but the first born died I think pretty early so he had an older sister and he became the only the only son because he also had an older sister and a younger sister was the only the only male in the family um and also they they lost their parents like my dad was a teenager when their when their parents died. But before mm -hmm. they died, the last two children, so my dad and his younger sister, were born in England. Um I'm not sure if that's like the my grandparents having a foresight of having uh, an escape plan because for most Nigerians the plan is to escape and find a better situation outside of the country mm -hmm. because of just jobs corrupt just yeah escape plans though. Um, so yeah, they, they lost my dad lost his parents and his oldest brother, uh, and he became the only man. Um at some point, that's that's my grandparents on my dad's side. Now, on my mom's side, my granddad was a pastor slash priest slash cult leader. And I say cult oh, leader based wow. on just based on the amount of women in his church that I impregnated, which mm. rings to me more than church but my my mom was one of many many children that I had and my parents met at my mom's at my mom's dad's church I think they were both on the choirs and they were fleeing around and that's how I ended up here because mm -hmm. I am my mom's last born but my dad's first born and yeah so that's the that's the context that I was born in and I think like my birth uh, changed my dad in ways because he left uh, that church. His younger sister was also there with him, it took her out. And by the, by 2000, when I was five, my dad was able to get he and his little sister uh, after years of trying um, British passports so they could move abroad. Because although they were born in England, uh, they were raised in Nigeria when their parents died, things became complicated. So um I was dropped off to my my old my dad's older sisters and her husband's family 
at five years old and my dad moved here because my parents went together and my mom was dealing with six other kids before me. So it was just this helper with one mouth, one less mouth to feed. I was living okay, with can my Can I mom. just ask a uh, question here? So, yeah. so when you were five, your father and his sister went to England. Did did your mother also go with them or she stayed? Okay. No, she, so, at this point, they were not together if they were ever. Okay, really. at this point, she's out of the picture, sort of. And uh, yes, or well, as far as my dad's concerned, yeah, she's out of the picture. And also, he, um, I, I, I've not, I don't have much details, but I've got a feeling that my dad was really involved in like the church that my mom's um, granddad had, and it sort of went for a de deconstruction of, of sorts. Hmm. And so um, that affected their relationship. And yeah, but sure. his, his plan was to, he will go over with his sister, work his way up and when he can get me over there with him as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. But uh, I remember the day that I got dropped off when I was five, but I remember it because um, one, it was my birthday, but more importantly, uh, you know, when there's uh, when <laughs> there's this thing, when you're, uh, thirsty, hungry. You think back to the food or the drinks that you that you could have had. Uh, when I'm hungry, I think back to a plate of rice that I was offered when I when my, when I got dropped off. But but because I was being a brat, I, I didn't want to eat it. And I remember still to this day, whenever I get really hungry, I'm like, oh, it would be nice to have that right now. But um, yeah. So I got dropped off to my my auntie and her husband's family. She uh had four kids. The youngest was eight years older than me and uh just they were christians in the like my uncle was an elder so he we went to church multiple times a week um he was he was traveling working for the government the railway government which meant that uh there was no steady income because they didn't pay them on time so it was a like, very odd thing but she would she took me and she took my uh, a younger sister, uh, her oldest daughter also stayed with us. So there were six kids that she was, uh, my auntie was having to feed off next to nothing whilst my dad was abroad trying to. So that's the context. Like my first memory of like growing up, growing into my soul was in that context of, I've got dad abroad. Um, I see my mom summer holidays. I'll go spend that with her. And that's when I, that's how I was introduced to the, uh, uh that, that side of the family because my dad didn't want me to have anything to do with him, and I mm -hmm. still don't think that he knows that I've, I met my granddad, my mom's dad. Hmm. Yeah, so it's all sorts going on over there. So yeah, that's the context I grew up in. But church and, uh, in this is between two thousand and two thousand and eight. There's no. And I was living in Ibadan, which is a south south of Nigeria. Like electricity was infrequent. Like maybe for a couple hours a day you might get it, meaning that I wasn't watching TV. I was outside um playing with a couple other kids in the, in the community. That was how I grew up. There was I read books because there was no TV to watch. And I really loved the uh, the biblical stories. Mm. Uh that really captured my imagination. I was yeah and <laughs> i was one of those uh at sunday school in the church i grew up in in my uncle's church uh it was actual school so though at the end of the year there would be tests given and um the kids that do well 
go to like the state level, the uh, national level to like compete on Bible question, the mm-hmm. Bible question that was always mm-hmm. chosen to present my nomination or my church in my province. So I was that kid because I just love the story. And yeah, uh, by 2008, my dad, after years of trying, finally got me over, came over here to, to live with him. And by this point, he, he had remarried and my little brother was born. He was five years old when I came over. So I was 13, 12 going on 13, and I was actually another change. And that's the biggest change of work because I'm going from uh, not just a change in the family context, but even in the environmental context. It's everything cultural, everything's different. And mm-hmm. of course, I was introduced to the great internet, which was, um, I mean, I was aware of it, but access to the internet back in Nigeria, you, you pay for internet cafes and you, the cheapest rates are like midnight. So you'll have to camp out and I'll, I get to go with my cousins once in a while. They'll, they'll drag me along to, okay, yeah, you can come along. And yeah, so that was my access to the internet. Now it's just there. And as the, as an autodidact, that was probably the worst thing because now there's just combinatory explosion. I was just going into, into different pockets. And as a young teenager as well. So yeah, all of those uh, wormholes became open, which, uh, but at the same time, I was still a Christian. And in, even in the old internet era, my friends and I in secondary school uh, became, I'd like this mini revival go through our school where kids, um, I think it was triggered by uh, video, conspiracy, conspiracy videos about the Illuminati and our music influences people. And like we were all, we were all really bought into it. And our solution was just to fall back on the faith of our parents and the faith that we grew up in. And that was like a. But this was your yeah. secondary school in 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 the year. In England, yeah, I think we were around fourteen, fifteen years old. So yeah, nine, year ten. I don't know what the equivalent is in. So do you still America. have contact with any of those young people? Yes, two of two of them are pastors. One is a missionary in Ghana right now. So so it stuck. I mean the the revival for, for some, yeah. Uh huh. For some, yes, yes, it did. Um. For a lot of us, it didn't quite stick. Uh-huh. I mean, I've been I've been Christian like three times because I've said it in this prayer about fifty times as well. So I'm I'm the type to just keep coming back. It'll stick for a bit, and then I'll find some inconsistent that will make me fall off. Uh-huh. So yeah, that that was, but that was a really impactful one because it was there was the whole the entire school, and at the same time, um. Rock Thorak, which is uh, a ministry of the uh, Billy Graham crusade or sorts, they work uh, in the England and they came to our area. And my my friends, my school were like kind of championing, like going to other schools, talking about Christ. It was really, mm-hmm. really, it was really, really cool. But at, at this time, I was, I remember having debates with my science teacher about evolution and uh, how that can't be the, the explanation for so yeah that was fully bought in and I was under online watching all of the debates just sold mm-hmm. it into that um and then I went off to college which uh 
I was in college. I was still, I was, I found a church straight away. That was one of the, my priority. Uh, and I, well, I was actually baptized uh, a, a year to, well, two years into my, into my university studies. But uh, at the same time, there were all of these new ideas that you're encountering and that, mm-hmm. that's another more things for you to squat, try square with the faith talk and, Prior to Jordan, I didn't really have the language for why things didn't quite fit uh, mm-hmm. because it was there was no, from my point of view, there was no attempt to try and make them fit. It was, they were always put as opposites that needed to be combated against, mm-hmm. against each other. Uh, yeah, I think I first ran into Jordan sometime, I was around 20, so second year, but I ran into Jordan through my friend that were not fully red peeled but sort of red peel lights meaning they are the, the the manosphere is a space on the internet for men to feel value because the society isn't bringing it and it's, it encourages like you just put yourself up by the bootstrap like, clean up your room all those sorts of things and Jordan's book mm-hmm. 12 Bruce for Life sort of fell into that and yeah I think I I thought that was cool, but I was never into all of those type of things. I was more into the philosophy and spiritual thing. I thought Jordan was just another um, get rich quick type individual. But then I saw his interview on Rogan where he was talking about God and religion, and that blew my mind. I was like, "Wait, what? There's a <laughs> that he that what who is this sorcerer speaking things that I I knew but didn't know how to, how to say." So that was uh my introduction to this little corner, but I still didn't engage with the corner until I think twenty uh, early twenty twenty. This was after I graduated and sort of spent a few years just floating. Uh, I, I my degree was in mechanical engineering, and there was a job offer that like, leading off for my final year project that I, I didn't even tell my parents about because I knew I was going to reject it. And I just, I wanted, yeah, I didn't want to go into the corporate climbing the ladder because what's the purpose of it all? Um, yeah, I was, when I was doing music, all of this creative type stuff that was not without purpose, but also it was needed. I needed to get out of my system at, at the point. And around 2019, it was the end of 2019, everyone was, uh, on social media was doing the decade challenge where this is where I was 10 years from now and this is where I am now. And that was like, oh, okay, so we're entering a new decade. I need to sort myself out and see what, what, what am I going to make of myself. And around that time, through some, uh, I, was, I would now say probably divine influences, I got interested into stories and screenwriting became uh, a, main, a main tool. So I was really into that and towards the end of 2019, going into 2020, I got myself a full-time job where I was like, I'm going to be consistent with this because prior to that, I would do, go uh, take a job for six weeks and leave and find other ways to make money until I can't and then go back to a job if I need to. Sorry, give me a second. Okay, go for it. My little brother's interrupted. Oh. Yes. Um. So, uh, by 
by 2020, I moved. I was trying to learn how to be a screenwriter. And somehow um, I rediscovered Jordan through his conversation with Peugeot. And that blew my mind. That was, uh, that was, I still don't have the language to describe the weeks, months after that conversation, the way the, like I was speaking to God in a, I was under, yeah, it was a spiritual experience that I still don't have the words for. But it was. Oh, that was so, the one, that was one that they had after he first came back from being ill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the one where Jordan speaks about the narrative and the objective were, were touching and saying mm-hmm. that he believes it, but it doesn't know, he don't, they know what it means. Um, yeah. That conversation, I went back to watch the conversation again and I can't point to what in it made me have the experience that I did, but I'll just say it was a divine thing, God, a God moment. Mm-hmm. And that really made me reassess, okay, how seriously I've always sort of dipped dabbled with this faith thing. I've never been an unbeliever, really, but I've never been um, fully sold under the submission of, like, a church because I I would always look around and, like, find ways where the church are inconsistent within themselves and then use that as an excuse to not go to church. I'm like, okay, I'm done with this church. And... Mm-hmm. When I found uh, the Peugeot conversation, I then found Paul Vanderclay's commentary on that conversation. I think it was a two-part for so three hours each, and I, I was sold. It was, yeah, I think I spent the rest of that week just binge-watching almost all of Paul's content, which is a lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> My God. <laughs> Um, at some point, I was I decided, okay, I might not get through all of them, but I can go through the or rough drafts for Sundays, and <laughs> yeah. So that that uh, yeah, that was that's how I really found this little corner, and uh, through that, I uh, found Peugeot, Viveki, and both Paul and Jonathan are consistent with their advice: go to church, go to church, go to church. And I was still wrestling with the, uh, my, a lot, a lot of things like church hurts, things like that. But um, at some point I said, okay, I'm just, I'm just gonna lock. I'm just gonna go to a church and, uh, I, I was gonna apply the same strategy I used to stay in a employment, uh, with church, which is just give it a year, a year of consistency. Just use that as the year challenge. Can you do it for a year and be consistent with it? So I said, just find a church, a local one, some some place near uh, where I've got no excuse to say it's too far, I can't get to it. Um, and that's what I did. And after the uh, the first church that I walked into, I was just broken, crying, just completely. So uh, uh, taken over by the spirits, to use Christianese t- terms. And that was like, okay, this this old YouTube conversation that led to this spiritual experience where I'm wrestling with God for weeks and then uh there was like a release for it and that that confirmed my participation in this little corner as more than just a YouTube algorithm find. Wow. Yeah so I think that story about going to church is so interesting because you said the thing that had always kind of held you back before were all the inconsistencies in the church. And I think that can be true about any institution, right? And that's because all institutions are made up of people 
And even though theoretically in the church, you're dealing with transformed people, they're still people. So one of the things I learned very early on, I was a missionary for a while back in the mid eighties and being part of a mission organization. When I first got into the organization, I just thought, Oh, I'm around all these people who are so spiritual and, and this is going to be amazing to be able to just work only with spiritual people and have all these spiritual experiences. And then, and somebody warned me and they said, the closer you get to the center of any organization, the more you're going to find problems and chaos. <laughs> and that was certainly true. <laughs> that, that's true of whether it's a, a company or a business or a church. When you get closer to the center where the where the power is organized, then all the personal idiosyncrasies and personal sins and habits and all that stuff gets all wound up in there. And yeah, so there's a yeah. lot of inconsistencies, but then I'm part of that inconsistency, right? So that's 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 the point that God had to bring me to it's like, okay, so your 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 vision is so clear that you can see all this inconsistency or, or maybe your vision you're seeing them because they're right in your own eye and that's what you're seeing through and yeah it's it's very humbling to for you to or for god to take me off that pedestal of oh yeah i can see through all of this um also as well as that it was the uh i felt a of fakeness in the way church people spoke to one another and uh, not but not so not being disingenuous but to being safe and yeah. all just speaking from the same words from the same hundred word uh, the christian needs offers and just mm -hmm. a member of the images there and all of this um I, the bible studies i love bible I, i've always loved the bible so i love so what what do you make of this but when someone tries to just color a little bit outside of line in the churches I was at previously, they'll be like, oh, let's bring you right back, just right back there. That's mm -hmm. this is what we believe. This is and we all just have to say, yes, this is what we believe. When in reality, I know everyone has got crazy ideas about all of this mm -hmm. uh, beliefs that we all assert to, which is why um the estuary idea when I caught up to that point of Paul's conversation. I was, I was so, I was like, oh, this is, this is great. I am now um, attending church, but I'm attending there and finding people that are just, the first thing that that strikes me is just people who are just ready to love on you. And uh, it just, yeah, people of different, Christians of different generations. And I was inspired by thinking, oh, these people have been doing wrestling on this walk for years and years. And yeah. Uh, it was the people what drew me there but my complaints were still there the, after a few weeks of just crying the reality settled but I, I wasn't shocked by this I knew what was coming and being involved in the conversation this little corner gave me uh, better frames in which to see things back things oh. am I still clear I just got to you are you, you your picture froze for a minute, but your vote, your your audible was still good. So I think we're okay. All right. Okay. All right. So still pick up. Yeah. Um. The the estuary idea I thought was brilliant because church should be a place where you can have meaningful conversation, and 
being like the courtyard of a church. So it's not in the building, but it's a it's a place where you can come into and meet Christians, non-Christians, people that want to have conversation about meaningful things. I was sold and I joined um Jonathan Dunk's estuary, estuary leadership support network, Elsnet for short. <laughs> and um uh, with the intent to start an estuary. Yet uh it, it took a while, it took until Paul's uh Euro trip. Um I used Paul's celebrity to sort of announce, okay, we're going to have an estuary in Manchester, in Birmingham, and just to see what the interests are. And there was a lot. Which was weird to me because I thought I was the only one paying attention to the conversation in this little corner, at least um in my areas, and uh, we also had people driving in uh, from faraway places just to be around Paul because of a celebrity. But just in my local context, we had uh, six to eight people that were consistently interested in meeting up to have conversations. Um, now selling this to my church was. <laughs> interesting because uh i needed to explain what it was that this little corner does <laughs> yeah that's the difficulty isn't it <clears throat> uh, i really can't wait for justin's 10 minute video that i can just copy and paste to everyone that asks about estuary or conversations regarding this little corner because the finding the language for it was <laughs> was difficult However, well, I was... but that's one of the reasons I would like to talk to you and some of these other people that have been involved for a few years <clears throat> to have more conversations where we can figure out. As I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day, that there's this big thing, and when we try to explain it, we we kind of get off into all this stuff. But but if we could find simple phrases that capture some essence of it. And then use those phrases as a kind of a springboard to explain more. So kind of like, for example, um, Jordan Peterson, if you collapse all of maps of meaning into one phrase, what you get is meaning precedes matter. Now, there's a lot in that. But if you said to somebody, meaning precedes matter, then they're going to say, well, what exactly does that mean? Well, now you can start explaining that little thing, right? And you can go off in different directions according to the person you're talking to. Relevance realization. Yeah, the, whatever's relevant to that person. Um, and if we find, like, relevance realization is one that's almost too big because to try to explain that, you have to explain John Perfecki. <laughs> sort of not happening so oh, but i think we have to find simple principles that are embedded in the larger thing even a simple one like like uh wh what capsulizes paul vanderclay he loves people well what does it really mean to love people all the different ways that paul loves people would be a way to get people to see there's something more here than just these biblical phrases right that it shakes down into your life and the way you live your life and, and all of that kind of thing so i think we could work on that kind of thing and come up with a little index of phrases that we could use when we're trying to explain what it is that you're all about because right now when somebody asks me i just kind of go 
I don't know how to explain this channel. <laughs> Go back uh, and listen to 350 to hours to of it. Okay. I want to talk to you about that as well because your I think your channel plays such such an interesting role in this in this sort of ecology of this little corner. Um, but going back to what you just said, that was what um that's what brought me to being appearing on camera. Under I was just one of the many people listening and watching and being fed different people on the algorithm and just consuming, just consuming, and. I realize that every most people that I'm watching seems to have a similar feeling that this is something important. And there, there were when the just chatting stream started, I thought it was a good opportunity to like get involved in that conversation to say, okay, what is it that that we are doing? Because one of the features of this little corner, it's this little corner talking about this little corner. <laughs> because we're all so fascinated about okay, so what why am I what is this again? But we <laughs> can't help but be drawn to it I, I like the, the phrases I did because that will help not just people that we're talking to but also ourselves so okay so this these are some of the things that I find valuable and why I'm still paying attention yeah well so keep going so at this point yes you, uh, you have started going yeah. to church you've gotten involved yeah. with the estuary and, and um, is your estuary still going it is um what well, yeah the one in the one in Manchester still is and that's going without me so yeah when Paul was uh, doing his Euro European trip I got an estuary in Manchester and Birmingham at the test run at both of them and then um uh, around that time not not so long after my uncle the one who raised me he passed away. And I hadn't seen or spoken to him since I left in 2008. So that was, and there were other family things that were going on. So I almost sort of disappeared from uh, from this little corner for a while. And even like the people that were at the estuary meetings were sort of reaching out. But I was just uncontacted. I was thinking about traveling back to Nigeria. It was just a lot of things going on at the time. But um, despite that, there were, and at the Manchester estuary, there were three two people that were still um willing to keep Deshra going even if I wasn't uh, wasn't there and uh, a month or so later I came back to like see emails from them and okay there is real thirst and appetite for estuary here and that sort of gave me another just like yeah there are people that find this important and want to have, keep this conversation going and yes, that estuary is still going on. That estuary is the reason why I ended up at Chino because Liz, a lady from the estuary, was the one that paid for my flight and my tickets mm. to the Chino conference. And even though she couldn't be there because she had family priorities, she paid for both Anthony and I to be there because she thinks the conversation is still kind of that important and meaningful. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's it was a trip because it's thanks to estuary that I was able to go to an estuary conference, which... That's I guess how God yeah. works, and I was able to meet you and be able to share my story on your channel. Yeah. So, so you, this lady from your estuary group, made it possible for you and Anthony to attend. And then, did you get something out of that conference that you could take back to your group in the UK? Oh, that's that's a really good question, and it's one that I've been sort of thinking around since I got back, since I got on the flight uh, at LAX coming back to England. It's just, 
I think firstly the the most important thing um at the at the conference we I was one of the estuary leaders that held uh that led uh, a team of a group of people in estuary protocol and at the final estuary night that, that we had with my group we had, we asked ourselves that question what are you taking back to, to your local context and one of the one of the there were two brothers that were in my group um deconstructed Christians and just sort of feeling their way back into this whole God business and he, he was the, the older brother was like I'm just look, looking after my family looking after it was a teaching the kids that uh it was looking after and just being being loving on them better and I thought that was a good start so within my I was just like I, I want to spend more time with my youngest brother or my stepbrother half brother don't know what the right term, my youngest brother he's um He's pretty much he's oh he started speaking with an American accent because YouTube taught him how to speak. So he's very much just growing up in this world of online. It's most of his friends are online and he struggles with like in person interaction. So mm -hmm. I thought I'll come back, just spend more time with them, take him, go to the park, play sports with them, just do things with them. That was the main thing. Um, estuarily, <laughs> going back to the protocol. Um, I want to start estuary in London. Because I am now, I was living in Manchester, excuse me. Hey, fever. Yeah, I was living in Manchester, but back in London now. And I've been attending Speaker's Corner, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. It's uh it's a for it's a open it's an open space forum for free speech in London. So anyone that, that's can that's what I thought. Yeah, I I have heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's yeah, I've been attending the last few weeks and it's it's obvious how far behind people are with the conversation that this little corner is taking part in. Uh, they're still speaking and seeing things through the frame of the conversation that the new atheists and the religious people had in the mid 2000s, the 2010s. So there, yeah. it's still very combative. More Falio Nikea than Sophia, yeah, and still fighting the straw man, right? So, <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly, and not just um atheists or Christians, Muslim Christian, Muslim Muslim Christian Christian. Just the conversation on the on the whole is like that. But I've been spent time there and spoken to people. I found that a lot of people are willing to have dialogue instead of debate and. They were willing to, uh, to actually listen to the other side. Oh, you explain to me what you believe, rather than me telling you the Stroman version that I've been taught about your beliefs. And I found that to be very um, enriching. I'm I'm learning more about Islam than I did previously. Uh, even though Nigeria is pretty much a, it's fifty fifty between Islam and Christian, and I had a lot of Islam Muslim friends growing up. I'm seeing the different eyes now. Mm. And I would really like to bring the spirit of Chino to Speaker's Corner. Mm -hmm. That's the, the way the conversations are conducted at uh, the Chino conference. Have that spirit uh, be our Speaker's Corner conversations take place. Now, I don't think that's going to happen overnight or even over a month. But I think by starting estuaries and having Speaker's Corner participants take part in the estuary protocol, 
I think that might be one of the ways to change the culture of the conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting that you said the spirit of Chino. Um, <clears throat> the thing that immediately jumped into my mind is, and it might take me a second to connect the dots here, but I had a friend one time who had gotten married when she was away from the faith. And <clears throat> so she married a man who was not a believer and she came back into the faith after her first child was born because she began to see, <laughs> you see so much when you're a mother. <laughs> right? And so she, she came back into the faith, became very involved in church and Bible study and all that. <clears throat> and at that point, she, very much wanted her husband to share in that with her. And he said, well, I will go to church with you, but I'm not going to believe. And so he started <laughs> attending church with her. And, and he did that for like 12 years. And she would often say, it's so heartbreaking to me not to be able to share that side of my life with him. And one day I just sort of, I felt led to say, well, why can't you share that part of your life with him? That is who you are. It's not that you have to change him. You don't have to share that part of your life with him in order to change him, in order to fix anything. But if you just speak to him as if you were speaking to me or speak to him as if you were speaking to any other friend, just be yourself. Just bring your faith into the conversation and treat him as if he is someone who can fully understand what you're saying. Instead of thinking, oh, I have to couch things in certain terms or protect the way that I say it so I don't offend or whatever, you know. And to me, that's what Chino was. Because we all came into our estuary groups with the assumption that we could start immediately being who we are. We didn't have to kind of check it out and find out who was on the same page as we were or whatever. We just started with this as if feeling. I'm going to talk as if you're fully capable of understanding what I'm saying and as if you care what I have to say. And I'm going to listen to you as if you have something to say to me. You know, it's this as if thing, right? And that, and that I think that you articulated the spirits that I'm, that I'm pointing to is there's a, there's a trust, there's an, an assumption of trust from the onset that leaves room for people to come with that with that openness that um come as you are come as if uh that they're, they're not going to be not that they, they won't be challenged they, i think most people expect it to be challenged but expect to be challenged uh in yeah expect to be challenged honestly without being strong and without uh, and expect to be asked questions because part of the proto a, a big part of the protocol is listening the, they were expected that they would be listened to. And mm. a lot of the conversations in, a lot of the, the, the reason I say it's because it's going to devote into debate is because they they were assuming that you're not listening to me, so I have to be louder. I have to get my point to, uh, across. Despite what the good point that you might be making, I need to get my point across because you're not listening to me, so I'm not listening to you. So listening's another one. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Because I'm assuming, it's this assumption of trust again, I'm assuming, well, you know, maybe this goes back to the whole risk and trust dynamic. 
Um, one of the things that I, I'm always thinking about the paradigm of marriage. So in a marriage, the way I looked at it when I, when I married my husband was that what he, he mentioned to me, you're taking a big risk by marrying me because in order to marry, you have to trust that the other person has your best interests in mind. So you're basically putting yourself in the hands of another person. So you're risking and at the same time you're trusting, right? And that's somewhat the same thing that we do when we come to Christ. We're risking, we're saying, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give everything into this because ultimately I trust that that you're good and that <clears throat> that the this risk is worth it. Right? Yeah. And so when you go into a conversation like that. You're going to risk being open because you trust that the other person cares enough about you, but you're also going to risk listening to them because you're not fearful that learning something new is going to destroy you somehow, right? That, that you can learn something new. You can even adopt something new without it destroying you. Because I, I remember back, I've been a believer for 40 years became a believer when I was 72. So now 43 years. So Crazy. yeah, it's amazing to me, right? <laughs> but um, maybe 20 years ago, I was walking through a bookstore. And there's this, I think it was probably Sam Harris, one of Sam Harris's very aggressive. And I hadn't heard anything about the new atheist. I just saw this book and it had God in the title. And I picked it up because I thought, oh, this might be interesting. And I read like two sentences out of it and it just, it, it, it scared me. And I, I, I looked at it like a serpent and I thought, I don't even want to know what he thinks because I'm afraid of what it might do to me. And I wrestled with that for a long time afterwards. And I thought, I want to get to the place where I'm not fearful of hearing other ideas because I'm so confident in the trust that I have in the Lord, that I don't have to be afraid that somebody else's anger or hostility or bitterness or rage or whatever is going to change that trust relationship that I have, right? I think um, what came to mind as you were speaking is Paul, Paul Vanderclay really helped me with the frame of if, you, if you're secure in your faith, you should be open to dialogue with anyone regardless yeah. which what offensive thing they they may say to you mm -hmm. if your if your faith is secure and also another frame is at the end of the day you stand in front of a judgment of one like it's christ is the ultimate judge and you will be accountable to it so if you're facing that daily which i definitely wasn't I, my spiritual practices were just an all-time low at that point uh, if you're facing that daily judgment, okay, I'm bringing myself in front of Christ, then it's easier to face man and whatever they may, they may have to say. <laughs> I think, um, thirdly, there's a reason for that, thinking from my perspective, why uh, partly why I was fragile with my, and insecure in my faith and not wasn't as open. I mean, debating my <laughs> science teacher 
wasn't because I was so secure. It was because I needed to know that there isn't uh this theory of evolution is not uh threatening to my my faith. Mm-hmm. I think it's because of the proposition of the uh, propositional tyranny. The proposition of the, the tyranny of propositions that John Vivekhi talks about. It's uh, the way my way of knowing what is true was purely propositional and that finding John Vivekhi's four Ps broke a lot of things open and it helps people in this corner who are aware of like different the, the four Ps and four different ways the four different ways of knowing. It helps us to have a bit more trust when people are are saying what they believe in. Uh, like we can ask more questions, investigate more because the initial assumption is often not correct. And doing more digging into proposition will reveal more of what they are trying to say. And that's a skill that I've learned in this little corner. I think those four Ps have something to do with it. So for somebody who's not familiar with this little corner, and there are some people who watch this show who aren't, when you say propositional truth or propositional tyranny, what exactly do you mean? Um. John Vivekhi's got that is theory. I don't know what to describe, but he's got um these four P's of knowing, which are propositional, perspectival, procedural, and the most uh, important one. Participate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's all your there's always one. The, the, the one difference each time, but there's always one that escapes my mind. Yeah, um and that's in opposed to the way of knowing that most of us are accompanying to, which is by propositions. We judge our, our truths by the propositions that we that we espouse usually, and we base all of what is um, what is but what is propositional truth? Uh dogmas is an, would be an example. The dogma of the written the written dogmas are propositions that a church might might espouse to and say this is what we believe. Whereas uh, the procedural would be the rituals that they go through. That's also part of what they believe. And equally as important as well as the proposition that they say, the um, participation uh, is the most important because that embodies all three, the, all of the other three. I don't think that's, that might be more marked than Viveki, but I think that is true. I think the participatory knowing is more, is more embodied. Well, so let's take an example. You could say, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor is a proposition. proposition. You should love your neighbor. That's a proposition. Now, the procedure is how do you love your neighbor? (laughs) Right? And and so then we have the story of the the Good Samaritan, which is that procedure, right? And then the participatory is you have to take that procedural truth and implement it in your life. And then it's participatory. And then perspectival would be when you when you look at that story, can you see yourself as all the different participants in the story so that you get all the various perspectives? So can you see yourself as the priest that's walking on the other side of the street because he doesn't want to be bothered by the wounded man or can you see yourself as the wounded man? Can you see yourself as the innkeeper? Can you see yourself as the, the Samaritan? So that's all the different perspectives. And that's that's part of what you get when you're like in an estuary group or theoretically it would be what you get when you're in a Bible study 
where you would hear all the various perspectives of how different people, like I had the real blessing when I was a new believer of being in a very small church that had originally been an old fashioned friends church. And the, the, the friends denomination in early days was one in which people would sit and wait for the Lord. So they didn't have an actual service but they would gather together and they would wait individually to hear from the Lord. And, and then various people would share, you know, this is what the Lord is giving me. So by the time I got there, they had a pastor, they had a service. I became a Christian in that church and I was in the Bible studies, but the Bible studies were often, we would read the scripture together. We'd read a verse and then we would sit for a moment with it. And, you know, how do you see that? How do you see it? What what comes up for you when you read this verse? Can you see how it fits in your life? Can you see how it might change you? And so it was never somebody top down telling us this is what you have to think. It was always let the Holy right. Spirit speak to all of us and then let us gather around this truth that we discover. And of course, there was always a seasoned believer there in case we go off in some weird direction, you know, but it was a great way to get started because it sort of helped me understand that there's, there's a lot in the scripture that just goes deeper, 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 right? What, what you just, what you just said just now about there being a seasoned Christian there, uh, helping, making to make sure you're not going too far, too far off, but also there's an affordance of flexibility for you to move around so it's mm -hmm. not too rigid. I yeah. think that's a, that's a good description for how I would like to conceptualize estuary. However, I don't feel capable of being the person to decide whether or not this is out, out of bounds. And I don't, that's one of the, uh, my questions about this little corner. Is there a, is there an out of bounds as far as this little corner is concerned? And, Who's, how do we how do we figure that out well that's a that's a good question because does estuary have a uh, different goal fundamentally than a bible study and i think it does um yeah, that'd be a good question to ask paul what he, what he uh, thinks about that because uh, because in a bible study we are um Wow, that goes deep. There's many different avenues to that, right? And in, that? in an estuary group, I'm assuming that the goal is you're seeking truth. Seeking in, to discover uh, some perspective some perspective on truth. Is that would that be correct? I haven't taken the leadership. I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure I'm 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 I've not checked in a while, but I'm pretty sure in the estuary protocol document that uh, I that I received when I first joined Elsnitz. The ultimate goal of it seems to be friendship. Okay. That's that's the tellers. And that's also partly why I felt comfortable to leave the Manchester estuary because there were real friends, like a friendship deep enough that you get paid for a flight to America. Mm -hmm. So the friendship had developed because we, we had a petition, there was conversation and there was trust developed between. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I was the only Christian there, and 
yeah, so I think friendship is a is a good is to tell us according to the protocol. But in terms of the individual or uh, each meeting, it's not you're not going to develop a friendship over just one interaction. So each meeting still needs a a go. And I think truth might be or at least uh the freedom to play, which is uh which relates to what the the role I see your channel playing in this little corner, playing with ideas. Uh, you you said at the estuary in Chino, you just got straight to it, and you got straight to it because you're able to trust that you can speak about things that's at the edge of what you're able to to vocalize and trust other people to catch what you're saying, see what's meaningful in it, and help you frame what you're trying to say better. Hmm. That's an interesting perspective on it. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's what you do, Karen. Uh, that's your every conversation that I've said. I've not watched all of your your videos, which I don't think I could. But all of the ones that I've really enjoyed are you allowing a space for scientists, like the Vaveki and Michael Levin conversation that you brought. Uh, McLevin on this uh, biological scale or uh, cognitive and they were both playing with ideas and finding ways in which their ideas are similar out there different and it's a really if you can keep up which I often can't but it's a really fun yeah play is the is the word that the best word I can think to use for it playing with ideas and molding and shaping ideas together that's an interesting frame um, I just had a conversation yesterday with a young man who is a <clears throat> circuit designer, electrical engineer. And he was talking about this whole idea of play, kind of the way his mind works is that he he's always playing with ideas in his mind. And as he's playing with these ideas, the the rules of the game that he's playing become apparent to him. And then those rules are a kind of a formula. And then that formula helps him to understand deeper things and sort of develop categories of truth to mm -hmm. fit into that set of rules. I mean, I didn't see this immediately when I was talking to him, but since I had the conversation with him, that sort of crystallized for me. So I can kind of see that happening. And, uh, it's very, very interesting because I think that's why I have the perspective that I have on how the, the cosmos came into being is that through playing with all the ideas related to the making of art, I realized that there is a not a set of rules, but there's a set of principles that are sort of underlying guiding everything and that I think those principles guide all the the uh, the motions of the planets and the way that plants grow and the way that animals grow and all. Of, I think those principles are underlying all of that. The very same principles that are used in developing a work of art, which says to me that the whole cosmos is like a work of art. And the only reason artists can do art is because they've somehow tapped into this set of principles that ultimately create beauty yeah tuning into right to the right frequency uh i 
I think one of the best conversations you've had was the one with Justin Wells, where uh you compared he spoke about his uh story archetypes and you were linking that back to the way you see us. I thought that was master a masterful conversation. Oh, I'm gonna have to go back and re-listen to that one. Yeah, it Justin is a really easy person to talk to. I really enjoyed meeting him at Chino because we were bouncing ideas back and forth all the time while we were listening to the, uh, the speakers and everything. And it was like, wow. Yeah. He's, and he's gone really deep into the whole story narrative thing since he got back. Are yeah. You on, are you on Twitter? It's sweet. Yes. Yeah. It's, sweet. Uh, it's threads are epic. It's, yeah. it's almost yeah. Matthew Pajot level. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I wish I lived in LA. If there would be any good reason to live in the LA area, it would be because I think he's going to put together maybe not an estuary, but maybe just some kind of small community get together where people that live down in that area can talk once in a while. That that would be so awesome. Yeah, I uh, I was telling Anthony we did like a debrief when we got back. Um, I was envious of the people of Americans when the Chino conference was announced because I just thought there was no way I was going to be able to attend but being able to be there um and but uh, I knew there would be combinatorial explosion with like which conversation to take part in but I had a very short list of people that I needed to track and have a conversation with you and Justin were both on that list because yeah and Justin I had spoken to I was part of in his documentary filmmaking class briefly so I knew that he was ideas had the ideas a minute. Yeah, yeah, and you know he's working on this documentary on um how housing and space <clears throat> how how the kind of housing that we build and the kind of spaces that we build it kind of identifies something about the way we think and and how the modern housing yeah. trend is so damaging, right? I, I think it's going to be a terrific documentary. Yeah, I I cannot wait for that. I've got a friend um, who's, she started a business in England and she's moving, uh, trying to scale it in, in Nigeria. And she's got this dream of uh, redesigning uh, houses and urban planning in a way that would be beneficial to communities. So I'm very interested in that documentary for that reason. Well, and the other day, somebody mentioned in the comments on my channel that they thought I should try to get a mashup between Neil Gershenfeld and Moshe Safdie. And <clears throat> the names sounded kind of familiar to me. And then I, I remembered, oh, Neil Gershenfeld is that guy that had the talk recently with Lex Friedman. He's a, uh, he is not sure what to call him but he he he's a teacher and and all of his students are working on design and building things various ways and he's got tiny tiny robotics that are self-actuating and they can build themselves and then get bigger and bigger and i mean it's a little freaky but um but then this moshe Safti is a guy who back in the 60s when he was just a young man he came up with this new design for housing and it became part of the world fair that took place in canada i think and he won some sort of a prize and they actually tried to implement it at the time but 
they didn't implement it well because they didn't put enough money into it. And so it never kind of went anywhere. But just recently, somebody realized, wait a minute, they could take this idea and they could do it virtually online and see what it would have been if it had been done properly. And so they built a whole virtual. Virtually as a simulation or as. Um, just online, just online. They, they yeah. did like a documentary, but they, they used all the, you know, all the software so that you could visualize what this place right. would have looked like. And it's just amazing. You should look it up. Moshe Softy. He, his yeah, stuff might yeah. be helpful to your friend because it's very open work, but it's based on the idea that every, every living unit should have its own space and its own air and its own sunlight. And then it provides these community spaces that also have sunlight. And uh, yeah, I've attempted like three spellings opened. Uh, uh, yeah, so Safdie is S-A-F-D-I-E, I think. Okay. Moshe Safdie. And then just look up housing or something like that. Moshe Safdie yeah. housing. And I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it in the information section too. Right. Thank you. Anyway, I told Justin about it because I said you would be a much better one to talk to this guy about housing than I would because you've got your documentary, right? And then you could, um, and he said, well, right now, he said, I'm just putting in 24-7 on this documentary for Estuary because it's a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, I told him about the comment. I was like, do you know how how, how big a challenge you're taking on I know. trying to sum up uh Estuary in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Try try to sum up 25,000 hours of video or something in 10 minutes. Because <laughs> the oh, cool thing is there's always something new coming up. Like today, before I got on with you, I was watching um, Jonathan Pajot having a conversation with Jordan with Hall Jordan, yeah. about the, the biblical perspective on AI and just off the hook, good stuff, man. That's... Um, you you mentioned Lex Lex Friedman earlier, and it's funny that's that's who that's the role that the YouTube by YouTube algorithm has assigned you in this little corner, because uh when I'm watching a Kara Wong video, there's always a Lex Friedman recommendation next to it, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because you I don't know how you manage to do it, but you go out and you learn. You discover this intellectuals that have got really interesting ideas, and you, you find you you build a bridge to out there connect to this little corner, and then you have them on your channel, have a conversation with them, asking questions. That yeah, it's that's the role you play. You bring new you bring new idea, refresh the estuary, bringing new people into it. Hmm. Well, like I think probably Lex Friedman got on your algorithm because of all the stuff I originally tapped from him on uh Stephen Wolfram's ideas I've, because... I've struggled to get into that uh I've attempted watching a few of your dialogues with him and I sort of have like a soundtrack of what is saying but I need to do a deeper that but another thing with your channel is I when I when I take a carry one uh, meaning code video I try to like homework I've got my notepad out, I've got <laughs> tabs open because I know there will be some new idea that I'll, I'll encounter but like, okay, I've never heard of this before let me go do quick research but that's fun that's what that's what I mean by the plane of the ideas you smash things to each other new things come out 
Yeah. Well, I mean, because I think part of it is because I, um, because I had the initial idea of what's going on. So then if, if I hear something that fits that paradigm, even if it's over here in like this morning, I was listening to some guy talk about a new development in the studies on, um, developing corn plants that can generate their own nitrogen. So you don't have to add nitrogen fertilizer to the soil. And the way that they've discovered that certain corn plants can do this, they've gone back to the old heritage corn plants from way, way, way back. And those corn plants had within them bacteria, a certain microbiome of bacteria that had nitrogen generating properties. And so if they inject those bacteria from the old corn plants into modern corn plants, they can get the modern corn plants to generate their own nitrogen. Mm. Like I'm listening to this and this is amazing. But one of the things he said was that they discovered that the roots of, of the plants as they're going down, the leading tip of the root has a negative charge. And then they think that the back, they're not exactly sure how this works, but they think that bacteria has a positive charge. Well, of course, when I heard that, I thought immediately about Mike 11 and all his cells and how the electrical charge is used to direct functions that the cells are operating, right? But then it also made me think, well, if the root end has got the negative charge, then do the leading shoots going up also have a charge? And that made me think about Michael Claridge, this guy with the electric universe, who says that the sun and all the stars are not primarily just burning balls of fire, of hydrogen and helium, but that, that they are electrical generators in some sense or other and they're all connected via electrical connections now this whole electric universe thing is a little bit out there but there are a lot of different scientists that have signed on to the project so i don't know but could there be some sort of electric matrix that's out in the universe that affects the way things grow i don't know but i mean that that's one of the things i'd like to kind of look into because it does seem like growing things are growing into some environment that acts back on the growing thing to guide how much it yeah. grows and what direction it grows it's and all that idea. kind of thing. How it, it's the, I'm just picturing Viveki doing this. Community <laughs> <laughs> dissemination dance. It's, yeah, yeah. I think that's what you're pointing to. But what, what you've just done there is the magic of Karen. It's this idea here. Well, yeah, there was also this idea here. What's about what? How do, how do things fit each, each other? And I think it's brilliant. I love that. Well, it may, um, be, a, it may be a sign of a sick mind. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> sign of a creative mind, which isn't far of a sick mind. So, yeah. yeah Maybe a sick mind, but it, it's a lot of fun. I mean, I, um, but it does mean that I'm, frantically trying to keep up with stuff all the time because I do try to be prepared before I talk to anybody who's knowledgeable about any of these things because I don't know anything I mean all I know are the things that I've heard and the things that I've read to try to prepare for it but I don't have the 
like my husband is a techie and over the course of his career, he's been through um, telecommunications and then routing and then networking and then um, chips. And then from chips, he's gone into Wi-Fi. So he's covered pretty much the whole wow, industry. He's... And the way that he did that is every... So did, have you had a conversation with him on your channel or is it off your channel? Because it sounds like someone that should be having input into... I've, all I've talked stuff. to him before about being... I said, you should really do this with me because... Especially with the AI conversation being so prominent. He's been at the ground level for multiple phases of the development that we're heading into. Well, yeah, there was even one point at which he was thinking about jumping ship from the company that he was at at the time. And he did a lot of study on AI to try to see if he wanted to move into that arena. But um, but my, my point was that he, he got a degree in mechanical engineering, which back in the day was kind of a dead end degree. Mechanical engineering is more important, important now because of robotics. But 30 years ago, a mechanical engineering degree was kind of a dead end, and he didn't really realize it when he took it. So he was trying to do that kind of stuff and ended up working for a lot of dead end things like the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, which was like a big government agency with nobody ever doing anything. I hope that doesn't upset anybody. <laughs> But anyway, of course it will. Uh, Something someone will be upset by it. Every time he um, made a move from then on, he would read a book, and he would learn the new technology just from reading a book. And by the time he got three or four levels up, and he's, he's getting ready to go to an interview on, say, routing or something, and he's reading this book. And I said, how can you even understand this? It's all acronyms. It's all technical language. It's all formulas and stuff. It has nothing to do with what you learned in school. And he said, well, but the point is, I had the foundation. Then I read a book. And then that foundation fitted in with that next level. And then, I, you know, so he's building on something. But I don't have anything to build on because my degree was in um English and drama and then my master's degree was in linguistics so I have nothing to build on but five years ago I heard Jordan Peterson and he in order to make his point he had to bring in everything biology chemistry philosophy um you know developmental psychology well, neuroscience all that and I thought, I need to understand something about all those things if I'm going to play in that sandbox, right? So one of the one of the functions of people in this little corner, which is very apparent speaking to people at China, is the autodidact thing. Uh, there's a there's a real sense of seekers of truth. I know that sounds cringe and a little bit cliche, but there is there is a little there is a, a real sense of that people that are like, okay, I need to know what that's this these things caught my attention. I would like to figure out why these things caught my attention. And I I don't know if it's ever in this little corner, but it's a big, a big potential of people in this, this little corner. Yeah, no, that's a that would be a good way to to frame things to see. Like you said, seekers of truth is a little bit cringy. It's so cringe. I felt <laughs> I felt that came out of my mouth. <laughs> but 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 that is 
because one of the things that first caught my attention when Jordan Peterson was doing the biblical series, he talked about how there's this phenomenon of there's a little little thing glimmering out in front of you that catches your attention and you move towards that. And he said, the only way you can effectively move towards it is if you, if you have the, the highest vision of which you can conceive. And then that brings into your, into the range of your sight, the things that you need in order to, to move forward towards this goal. But that little thing that's shining out in the in the distance is actually your future calling you forward. And I thought that was such an intriguing idea. Because that's kind of the way God works in our lives. He's always building us. He's using our current circumstance, whether it's painful or happy or you know, educational or whatever our current circumstances, he's using that to build us for the next moment and for the next moment and the next moment, because there's something calling us forward. We're it's being, called, we're being, you know, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That is the thing that's calling us forward always. So to try to understand what that is, so we know what direction to go, right? A big part of um, my journey in this little corner that I forgot to mention was whilst I was doing the wrestling and God having this profound spiritual experiences, one of the real guidance that people that gave me perspective was N.T. Wright and mm. his insistence that the resurrection and uh, that heaven is not a place that we're going to after we're there. It's a place that we're, that we're that's coming, that's going to be brought onto earth now. And we are currently working as servants of the kingdom now. And that that's the similar thing that you're pointing to. There's a calling forward of a promise of the kingdom to come. But whilst you're here, you're still working towards that kingdom. And it's that kingdom to come that's calling, that's giving your pull towards the ideal. I don't know if that makes sense. Absolutely. You know, it, it reminds me... Um... My older daughter went to Moody Bible Institute for her college. Oh. And um, this was back in the 70s. No, I'm sorry. She was born in the 70s. This was back in the um, late 80s. She was at Moody Bible Institute. And one of her professors, and I've been trying to find this book ever since, because she told me about this book that she was reading that she just found so powerful. And the author's last name was B. It was something like Billingsley or Bellingham or something like that. But the idea of the book was that we are in training for our roles in heaven, that 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 we have roles in heaven and that our life here is is a training for that. And I would love to get that book and read it because I never read it. She told me about it. Right. And so. <clears throat> I've yeah. been thinking about it a lot. So if anybody knows what that book is, please put yeah. it in the comments. <laughs> I will be checking the comments for that book because that yeah. sounds that sounds like the I was getting um in this spiritual wrestling with God week that it was uh that was the clarity that uh I had um, a clarity on love, like that that truly love is the highest ideal and 
practicing I need to be doing the reps to be of practicing that what it means to be loving now because that's what I'll spend eternity doing and it's that mm-hmm. role that how that's being done yeah so if you find that book please I would love to take a read and so one of the practical ways that you're doing that is by by being there for your brother for your brothers and and loving them right yes how, how many too. siblings do you have <laughs> um I've got three younger siblings and six older ones but I'm much closer to the younger ones than the older uh-huh. ones because the older yeah. ones are also they're still in Nigeria uh-huh. and I left a while ago yeah well and the younger the ones are the ones that especially in the way that the world is going now I mean you you grew up in difficult circumstances <clears throat> a challenging environment but you had the blessing of not being tethered to a cell phone. I I really did. And uh, I was speaking to one of my childhood friends back in Nigeria. And one, the, my mem- childhood memory consists of uh, church because we spent a lot of time. It is always some crusade some that we're going to. Uh, school because education was the most important thing. But climbing trees was a close third because I spent a lot of time just yeah leave the house climbing trees finding fruits on the trees with my friends and go play football and come back late at night what you eat we found food we found food somewhere and that was every day uh when you're not at school it's just going out and being playing in with your friends and having community so i am so 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 blessed that was one of the biggest culture shock was moving here and finding out that you're not uh, you, you don't spend the evenings gossiping with your neighbor in front of the front garden because that's just what communities did where I came from. You know your neighbors, you're friends with them, you need to borrow a cup of shit, a cup of a little bit of salt, you go to the neighbors. So that that was a little bit of about taking time to get used to. Um thankfully I was uh, my direct neighbor was two elderly couples that we were friends with, but they were the only people in the neighborhood that we were really friends with. And in Nigeria, it's the opposite. Everyone knows everyone else's business, which is, God, it's good and it's bad, but <laughs> it's, it's community. <laughs> that was one of the biggest shocks for me moving to California, too. I mean, I had the buffer of in between living in Iowa in a small town where part of being part of the church was that you knew everybody in the church and you did things together and you go hang out at each other's houses and it was perfectly okay to call up or not call up and just drop by and visit people. Yeah. But then I moved, I was in Japan for three years and then I moved to California. <clears throat> in California, if you can't book it out six weeks in advance, you're not going to get together because everybody is just busy all the time. And you have to be so intentional about maintaining community. It's almost impossible so then church becomes super important because at least on Sunday and at church activities, you're together, right? And we have a small group in our home that meets every two weeks. And so we we really make that a priority in the way we schedule our time and everything else to be prepared for that and um, try to keep in touch with all the people in the small group in between times. But it's really hard when you live, and I'm sure London is the same way. I mean, there's just no connection. You have to be very intentional about it. Yeah, you do. Yeah, in, intentional is the key word. 
uh, it's funny you said uh, it's rude to drop by without calling. In Nigeria, it's rude to be around the neighborhood, like around Dobison, not drop by. If you're around the area, <laughs> you have to come say hello. <laughs> so that complete opposite. So there must be something really wonderful about the Nigerian culture. You said even though there's a lot of corruption there and a lot of problems, but everybody I've met from Nigeria is just like you, just wonderful, happy, loving. <laughs> what What is that? Uh, well, you, you've met the, the right ones, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I promise you we've got our own bad just like any other place. Well, maybe, um, maybe because culturally. most of the people that I would meet from Nigeria are Christians that I meet them because they've come to the church or something like that. Yeah. Yes, that's that's uh the 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 Christianity in Nigeria is a it's a very interesting. It's everywhere. You could not go. It's multiple churches on every street. It's that, but but it's also to the point where, um, going using my maternal granddad as an example there's a lot mm. of scams going on there's it's it's popular and it's popular for a reason so there'll be cooks mm. yes so it, it it can be more like a some some of them are more like a social club some of them are more like uh because i'm a good speaker and i'm charismatic i can get you under my control exactly. so i mean there's a lot of different things going on there yeah yeah, yeah there is and which um the the Muslim side, the Nigeria is split into like mainly into north and south, and north is very much the Muslim side, and south is mostly Christian with some Muslim. The the northern Muslims are, are the wrong sort of Muslims. They are the it's it's a lot of uh, just targeting Christians, endless persecution. That's just constant. It's part of the. Whereas in the south, it's mostly Christians. With some Muslims, but there's more. It's more. Um, there's more unity between the two. It's more harmonious. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, it's a very interesting spiritual dynamics going on. But there are still the traditional, um, ancestral religions that will still also play a part. Yeah. Well. So that that kind of puts me in mind of when I first became a Christian back in 19, it was the 1980, yeah, 1980, I became a Christian. And this is, I, I understand it's a completely different picture, but it there's some similarities in that the church where I became a believer was a tiny little gospel preaching church that was out in the country. And it was equidistant from about five small towns. And people mm. came from all those towns out to this little church because in those towns, all the other churches weren't really preaching the gospel. They were social clubs. You belonged because it gave you a name in the community or, you know, if you were going to be yeah. someone who was respectable, it was expected that you would go to church. Um, but if somebody wanted to hear about Jesus, then they came out to this little country church. And so yeah. at that time, you know, the only believers that I knew were the ones that were part of this little country church. And um, then when I moved to California, 
there's hardly any believers here. So there's no point in going to church as a social <laughs> club because you then you have to call yourself a Christian, but it makes you an outsider, <laughs> right? So, so the people who are believers really understand what it's like to be alone, <laughs> right? To stay yeah, alone and... That's exactly right. I remember um, in my in my church, my, my uncle's church in Nigeria, it was the pastors come and go, but the elders sort of lead. And there's always, even as a kid, I remember there are the past, whichever pastor comes in brings a different spirit with them. And there was one particular one that was just beloved by the entire I think he was there for less than a year, but everyone was crying when he was leaving because it just had such an impact. And he's, I remember our conversations around the dinner table. <laughs> That's funny because there was no dinner table. It was just sat around the floor having a conversation about the pastor. Um, my uncle and my cousins were saying how he was very uh, Christ-focused and there was less collections every week compared to the usual. And it was very much about the gospel, which I don't think I understood what it meant, but that rings true, similar to what you said. There are different modes. And even in, in the same church, I saw like we will have a, a pastor that's very much about the broader nominations moving forward. So there's a lot of collection to help bring this up to standard, whereas there are some that actually care about the souls of the people their leader well why did he only stay for a year uh he i think he got actually got promoted to a uh other than being a pastor to an apostle which means it was a head of a uh, irish i don't know the language for it but different hierarchies so it was moving up and it was uh he had, i think he had been planning he'd been meaning to they've been asking him to move up for a while and it was at the, our, our church that I felt like, okay, I, I can I can move up to the next level. Now. And everyone was like, oh, I remember that. Today. I, remember, I don't know his name, but I remember his face. I remember the day he was leaving, just seeing everyone crying and the emotions that was in there. Well, that's kind of funny because when I was a, when I was a missionary, one of the things we had to do for a year before going over to Japan was go to various churches around the country and tell about the mission and and um, try to seek prayer partners and people who would support us financially. And one of the churches we went to, and I won't say what denomination it was, but it was a very <laughs> large church and they had a annual mission conference that went on for a week and we were blessed to be part of that missions conference. And so they housed us for the week with different people in the community. It was just terrific experience. And the pastor was very dynamic, vital, strong believer. And I had an opportunity to have a conversation with him. And I said, I've never seen a church this large and this dedicated to Christ in your denomination before. Cause I had by this time become quite familiar with the denominations that are mainly social clubs what I guess we would call mainline, mainline denominations here. And, uh, and he said, well, he said, it's because I preach Jesus. 
in our denomination, usually the pastor gets moved every two or three years to another church. But he said, they don't want me moving because they don't want me carrying the story of Jesus out into the world in this denomination. So they've left me here. It's a demotion to be here. But he mm. said, actually, it gives me this opportunity to preach the gospel to all these people. <laughs> and so he had this thriving community within this otherwise sort of dead church. And I thought that was really, I mean, the way God works is just very interesting. That's so, that's such a uh, that's such a useful reframing on his behalf to see the demotion as an opportunity, and it got blessed through it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very interesting. It's that I've been I've been the posture of gratitude, which I think it was was you that tweeted about that recently in response to I think. Ken Lowry had said something about, about gratitude being fundamental. And it, I said, could I just add humility? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think they work like this, right? Yeah. That, I think gratitude and gratitude, you can't be gratitude, grateful without being humble. Because. Uh, well, and you can't be humble without. Without realizing. Without realizing you need to be thankful. <laughs> so, because, <laughs> I mean, hum, humble humble assumes that there's something above me and that something above me is good and so therefore i can be thankful and grateful assumes that there's something to be thankful for <laughs> which assumes there's someone bigger than i am which yeah. makes humble humble assumes that the person above me is worth celebrating instead of fearing if it, if I if it was worth fearing, then you could have a push of resentment towards the the above. But if it's if you're if you're approaching with a spirit of humility, you believe that you should be grateful for the person. The God is good all the time. Well, and even if it's a person above you who is someone to be feared and is someone who is mistreating you, and I mean this is a very controversial thing to say, and and I'm only saying it within a certain frame. Because I remember one job my husband had, he was at for nine years where his boss was extremely abusive with everybody. Um, he'd walk into a meeting and he'd just start calling people stupid to their faces. And he did this to my husband many times. And you come to a place where for him, he felt like God hadn't released him from that job yet. Well, then... Mm -hmm then there's some reason that this person is above me. So then there has to be some reason that I have to be thankful that this person is above me because God is teaching me something here. Right. And sure enough, when he left that and went to the next job, all those things that he learned inside that pressure cooker were so helpful to him in the next job. And in the job after that, that he wouldn't have had, if he'd had somebody who had, celebrated him as oh you're doing such a great job and thank you and everything is lovely and perfect and he would have never had to refine all those skills upward to try to meet the demands of this very unkind person so i know i mean it's a controversial thing and i know that there are a lot of situations in which it would be toxic to say that you need to be celebrating this person above you who is abusing you so i'm not you know, I'm not trying to go there. I'm just saying. I, I, I don't think you're uh, 
again, I understand why it didn't designate for that disclaimer, but I don't think you're saying anything even borderline heretical. It's the story of, of Job attests to that. It's this yeah. need to still have a posture of humility and gratitude in front of God, regardless of the circumstances. Because like you said, it, uh, in your in your husband's work case, those pressure, those lessons held him in good stead in a different environment. And God's got his reasons. Yeah, yeah. God has got his reasons. <laughs> I mean, um, that that that's yeah, my auntie's she was the type of every family's got the strict auntie. She that was my that, that that was the woman that raised me. She was the one that all the cousins know that uh you can get away with stuff, but not where mommy buttons around. That she's the so she was again, uh, she lost her older brother and her parents pretty young, so she became the mother of a younger sibling. So that sort of gave her that she she that authoritarian role. And she always spoke about there would be so countless nights where there was there's just no hope for where the next meal was coming from and she was very honest with, with the kids as young as I was I was part of the conversation like, just tonight we don't know we're praying we don't know uh but each time she always ends with but God is good and you have to say it back all the time and all the time God is good it's just that training and in regardless of the situation have that posture of it so that's what that reminded me of. You know that song? God Which is good one? all the time. Yeah. Uh, the Women of Praise. Oh, I don't know if it's Women of Praise. I, I used to lead worship in a in a small church not too far from here. And that was one of my favorite songs to do. God is good all I'm gonna put it in the I'm gonna put it in the <laughs> information section for people because it's such a great such a great reminder. Yeah. This has been so great, Tyle. Can we talk again sometime? Yes, please. I would absolutely love to. I said earlier, before we started, I said to you that I had a few ideas I wanted to play with. So I would happy, be very happy to do this again. Oh, we didn't, we didn't get to your ideas yet? Oh, my God. It, it, it's fine. <laughs> it's, the conversation just, just went bad. I'm looking at my notes. I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't get to all this. But it's fine. I'm happy to do this again. Okay. Well, to just... um kind of be a cliffhanger for people can you just elucidate a couple of the ideas briefly and then then we'll we'll touch on them in another conversation all right okay just really quickly the one um that i wanted to pick your brain about is which birth from estuary conversations that from my master estuary which is about culture being uh the manifestation of the negotiation between uh the narrative let me uh, Get read it out. Close this for a sec. Uh, yeah, it's so the conversation. Uh, one of my one of people in my issue. We were having a uh, conversation about narratives and now different the historical accounts are just narr different. Uh, I've, each historical account comes with different narratives, and it's difficult to try to kind of kind of pinpoint um what is objectively true about history. And I said that's, and I came to the culture. That's what culture is. Culture is the negotiation of what the historical account will will be. So, just as a teaser, I I want to explore that with you next time we speak. A negotiation of of the narrative accounts. 
of mm. history. Sorry, there are too many things open and I can't find my notes. Okay. Well, anyway, we we know we're going to talk about history and culture and negotiation. And history maybe culture, before, like, before we talk, you can actually write it out for me so I can think about yes. it. Yes. That would be great. I did spend a few years working as a intercultural consultant. And so I have some thoughts about that. Uh, that would, yes. Um, and, and also, also have, you ever read, um, have you ever read um, Eternity in Their Hearts? No, I haven't. You buy. I think you would really enjoy that book. And the guy that wrote it <clears throat> wrote another book, <clears throat> Peace Child which is also a terrific book. Don Richardson? Is that yes, one? yeah. These are all missionary standards. Eternity in oh. their hearts. I mean, talk about narrative. The narrative of heaven touching the narrative of earth. It's really remarkable. I can purchase that for three pounds, so that's being purchased right now. <laughs> Lovely. And you said before you go, you had one more thing? Yes, oh, just for your, for your, for your audience sake. Meeting you in person was amazing because it was you. I I know that you've got political. You were um, involved in politics in the past, and I was like, if if you were running, I would vote for you. You're so personal, but you gave uh, time for everyone. I came to talk to you, and you engaged them in the weird ideas. I mean, at the at lunch one time we spent, we were talking about maps and on range and on base, and you was just yeah, it was just fun to play with ideas with you. So thank you. I thought the, the thing that amazed me about the whole Chino conference, and I <clears throat> don't exactly know how to put it into words, but when we're talking on here, you know, we can see each other clearly. It's <clears throat> almost 3D and all of that. And there's a certain light coming off of each person. So there's a, there's yeah. a beauty and a closeness in that. In but when place. I met people in person, it was almost like there was a golden shimmer in the air between us. Like you could you could visualize the actual connection happening. It was really it was exciting. Beautiful to watch, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. And I don't just mean that metaphorically. I mean, I could see like gold dust in the air between us. <laughs> Symbolism happens. <laughs> Symbolism happens. <laughs> this has been so great, Tayo. You've just made Thank my you. day. Thank you so much, Karen. It's been, and it's been we could pleasure. go on for hours, but I don't think we should. <laughs> Let I'm me know. Let me know another time that works for you. Um, I will I'm do. available up until the 29th, and then we're going on a vacation, and I'll be back again mid July. So. Okay, I'll try to get one in before you go for vacation. Okay, sounds good. Thanks a lot. Bye, bye.